0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management.
1: There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working On Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working On Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez.
2: Welcome back to the Working On Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, my home base, As you know by now, if you've been tuning in, this show is all about the world of work and how we might be able to help people derive a more meaningful experience from the work that they do. As today is Veterans Day, we have a special pause to consider what it really means to serve your country and even die for it. All of us have someone in our lives today to remember and to thank for their service to their nation. Our focus in this conversation is on the experience of service and how we can help support our veterans when they return from duty. So this week, we get to talk with one of my most favorite veterans who served her country for 25 years, Colonel Kim Olson, retired from the Air Force in 2005, having served as an aviation leader, commander, and patriot. Her service and leadership has reshaped the perception of women serving their country. As one of the first women to command an operational flying squadron, Kim rose to the rank of colonel, served in the Pentagon on the Joint Staff Office the the Secretary of Defense, and the Air Staff, and deployed to several combat zones, including Iraq. She joins us today from her ranch in Mineral Wells, Texas. Colonel Olson, it is an absolute delight to have you with me today. Welcome to the show.
3: Always a pleasure to speak to another professional, Elise. It's good to be on.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I know I'm looking forward to this because, of course, I know you somewhat. I've read oh, well. your book, and I have lots to get out of you in the short time, so let's get to it. Um, <laughs> I I have come to know you, of course, as the force of retired Air Force Colonel Kim Olson over the last couple of years now. And I know a lot has gone into the making of the person you are today. I know that. And I I look forward to hearing more about that today. But I do want to hear just a bit about kind of what you're up to today as running a community-supported agriculture from your 4K river ranch and mineral wells. What's that all about?
3: Well, it's interesting. When military people tire, retire, we don't really give up service. So uh <laughs> area I picked I picked after uh, 10 years of being retired, like you said, is to work in the arena of agriculture. And we work on a ranch. We raise bees, and those in the audience know about our plight of bees. So we try to be good stewards of the land and provide um, food for my community and food for our bees, who are really important to the agriculture of this nation. And in that work, we educate people about what they can do as far as permanent ag- agriculture, safe practices on the land, and how you can actually build a sustaining home um, for wherever it is that you're, you're living, and hopefully that earth in which we're going to hand to our next generation might be a bit kinder than, let's say, you're in my generation would have
2: been. (laughs) Mm. Such a such a thoughtful approach. And here's what's funny about that, what you just said there, right? I grew up for a bit of time on a farm in central Washington state, and it's really hard work. It's no surprise to me that here you are retired on a ranch. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, you better love labor because it is a labor of love. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> you need a new definition of retirement, Colonel. <laughs> um, all right. Well, peeling back just a bit more, I want before we get into your actual service, which I think is going to be really interesting for today's show. I do want to get more into what you did after you after you left. And so I know that one of the things that you did as well as you served as president and as CEO of an organization called Grace After Fire. Um, tell us, if you will, about that experience and what it was about that organization's mission that really resonated with you. Why, did you. why did you do that service?
3: Well, that's a really insightful question, Lisa. And I think the reason that it drew me to that kind of work with helping, our, especially our female vets, that was Elaine that, that I worked in as the CEO, is because those of us with gray hair and chemically altered gray hair were the generation that sort of took the doors off the hinges for women to do all kinds of things, whether it was to go into law, medicine, and the military. But the piece that we missed was ensuring that there were safety nets underneath those of us who were going to do the business of, in my case, warfare. The Veterans Administration system, which has been set up for many years, has worked, although some would argue how hard, uh, in helping our male veterans who have been, you know, um, suffered the traumas of war, because war brings out the worst of humanity and the and the best of humanity. And so, those that understand the human heartbreak that is war needed services when they came back, whether it was World War II, Vietnam, Korea, Desert storm, and now, of course, the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts. But again, there wasn't anything for women. And so when 300,000 women did tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, all of a sudden there was this huge tsunami of now women who'd served basically in combat, whether you like it or not, you go over there, you're in combat, whether you're titled for it or not experienced some of those same things our male counterparts have experienced, and there was nothing back here stateside to help them. So that's what Grace After Fire concentrate on, was finding services to help women. Because, look, if we don't get this right with women vets, if we don't get brain research right, if we don't get the pharmaceuticals right, if we don't get reintegration to the right, we lose a tremendous asset of someone who served their nation and can yet still serve their community after they get out of the military
2: Mm hmm So what kind of services did you provide for them? Well, a lot of things. Number
3: one, our our first thing was to, I love this word, was to educate and agitate. You know, and I do that very well. Yes, uh, you do. I have to like a washing machine. And so you go up and you begin to talk to folks about the issues that face women vets and some of the the services that were lacking in their recovery process. You talk to providers of services to help help. who work with women and say, hey, by the way, some of those are women vets. You've you got to start including women vets in your, your advertising in the, the professionals that you hire to deal with them. We would talk to employers and say, look, this woman is also a female. We would talk to the VA about, look, you've got to get some more providers in there, some more docs, people that are, are versed in women's health. And we would talk to people that did research around things like PTSD and some of the other traumas that have come with war. So we did a lot in the advocacy side, and it took footing, especially in this great state of Texas, where, you know, we have the largest population of women vets right now resides in our state. And so I think the state has really stepped up. Now we got a ways to go. But it really stepped up in putting money behind outreach for women. And then we went and we just basically, Grace, our fire had women on, not boots on the ground, but heels on the ground, to do outreach, to, to be the brokers and connect women vets with the services that they needed to reintegrate so that they would understand they weren't alone in this game and that there were lots out there that were there to help them. But because there are a few of us, you know, only 15% of the military population is female, and then you come back into the general population, you get fragmented. And the other thing is, at least, women have a really bad habit of taking care of everybody else first and themselves last. So you look at the female, deploys for nine, 18 months, comes back, she's trying to reintegrate into her family. If she's got kids, if she's got a husband, you know, she's trying to resettle that marriage, build her nest back up. And, you know, her needs take, take a back seat to building her family.
2: Mm-hmm. And you are there to change that. I, I think that is a perfect role for you. Now, how long were you in that position?
3: I was there for five years, and then like any good boss, you should know when it's time to hand it off to the next person, because if you're not training your replacement, you're just holding up space. So the Grace After Fire is being run by a fabulous woman down in Houston now. Mia Williams is her name, and you know you can read anything you want about, about the organization, graceafterfire.org, and she's the generation that... Really took the blunt of Iraq and Afghanistan. So it, it makes sense that the organization that would should be run by someone in that generation.
2: Mm-hmm. I really appreciate and applaud that, of course, you had that foresight and you passed the baton as you did. I think that does indicate the true mark of a leader. I'm not surprised, but I, I appreciate that about you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, the women, a few words that's very hard to get a uh a, a, a okay from you, I know. <laughs> It's the pilot training um, in me. We don't chit-chat
3: on the radios very long. I, you get in, you I, get out. That's how it works.
2: <laughs> I know. I know this about you. I, it's one of the one, one more endearing things about you. Um, Well, before you got into that, what I thought was interesting, I mean, you come right out of the military and then you get into education. And I I didn't know this so much. We haven't talked about it too much. But you served as the director of human resources for the Dallas Independent School District. And you were even elected to the Weatherford Independent School District Board of Trustees. I think it was both in 2007. So first, why education and how did you get those positions right out of the military?
3: Well, I, had, I knew I was going to get out of the military, and there's a uh, program called the Broad Foundation, and what they did is they sought out leaders in the non-traditional, what you would call people who hadn't grown up in the education system, military business, law, and they said, look, we need, we need some outside look into our public school system, especially those huge urban school settings. And so for one year, I went to a course on uh, the Superintendent's Academy, it's called, and the idea is to try to inculcate leaders into the public school system arena. And so I did that uh, kind of on the weekends, that type of thing. And so when I rolled out of the military, they one of the things they do is they help place you. And when uh, the superintendent at Dallas ISD w- needed some help, uh, they called us, called me up and said, hey, would you consider HR over in Dallas? And so we interviewed, and, and he, um, he hired me. So for two years, I worked over at the Dallas ISD, and... You know he he changed a lot of things. I I think uh, Superintendent Anahosa is kind of a forward leaning kind of guy, and it was a fascinating endeavor for two years. And at the same time as it, it would, as it would be, I I was elected to the school board at Weatherford, so I got the dynamic of being an administrator of a large urban school setting and being. An elected official on the board, sort of the other side of the fence, if you will, of a small suburban school setting. So it was really a, a fascinating journey into and a, a firehose effect into the the realm of the education arena t- in today's
2: in today's school systems. Mm. So two things come to mind. One, since Inahosa is back, that means you have to come back, right? <laughs> well, you can always give me a call. He knows my number. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. It'd be wonderful to have you back. Uh and, and secondly, can you just share a little bit about what was it? What kind of things were you involved in? I mean, I know the general world of HR, but for a large, huge, independent school district, I mean what kinds of things did you do?
3: Well, you know, the first year was like the honeymoon year. We we had um we had some funding to help to do some really interesting changes and we revamped things and you always gotta come in and kind of you start in, you start when you when you're a leader and you go into a place and you're like, okay, I'm here to kind of literally clean things up. You start close up and you kind of clean up your own office before you can go tell other people how to do their business, right? So we we revamped HR. We re- we did things. I, I remember walking into one of the gal's offices and I kid you not, Elise, she had paperwork from her floor to her ceiling, and then almost like she was building a bunker around her. I said, oh, oh, I don't think so. Yes. <laughs> so we we literally cleaned up, and then we did things like we tried to, you know, and this sounds kind of boring, but this is very important when you get audits. isn't it? When we tried to standardize people's records and we tried to standardize the compensation program and we tried to standardize a lot of things. And and the first year went off really well. We, re, we were doing great and we set up a phone system because, you know, you heard all the complaints about HR. But I think we did a lot of things. And, and there, at least there are those of us that come in and, and we work, 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 and we fix, you know, we get things moving and get things tracking. And then someone comes in behind you, if you will, and then takes over and moves it on. And and true to form, which I thought was fascinating, in my second year, I, I, we brought Teach for America into Dallas, yep. ISC. Yep, They know the program, us fantastic, and, yep. Yeah, and rightfully so, because that year we got in trouble money-wise and ended up laying off, you know, almost 1,000 positions, took it out of the system, which was brutal, I felt, so for the employees. I'll tell you, Iraq was easier than doing that. And... <laughs> And that was tough. That that was, just, but that's what you get paid for. You don't get paid just to do the easy stuff. You get paid to do tough stuff too. And that and that was very hard. That was very. I, I'd never really fired anybody. You know, in the military, you don't fire fire people. You just sort of move them on or boot them out. But that was really a challenge. I'll be by, be quite honest. And it took a lot out of me. And but the interesting part is the kid that I worked with to bring Teacher America into into Dallas ended up being then the next HR. So I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. So, you know, even though you're not there to maybe reap the rewards of all your hard work, it's kind of like farming, if I could bring it back to that. Sometimes you plant the field, fe- you know, sometimes you plow the field, sometimes you plant the seed, sometimes you fertil- fertilize the not out of it, and then you got to kind of leave it alone. And it'll rain and the sun will come, and you may not be there when all the crops come back up. And that's kind of how I-, I view my time at Dallas. I think there's wonderful crops blooming all over that place, and I'd like to think I was one of the plowers and the planters of it.
2: Mm-hmm. Mattering and making difference still. The legacy goes on. What I also find, um, I guess, um, happy about that whole thing, or encouraging, I should say, is that it that, that sounds like they were open and wanted another perspective, that being, you know, the military If that was the case, I'm happy to hear that because as a person who spent many years in recruiting, what we often see in organizations is they don't want you unless you've got your their particular industrial experience. And I think it's wonderful that they said, come in with a fresh perspective. I hope that we're getting more of that for our our veterans as, you know, going back to the idea of support. What do we do to support these people when they come back? I'm hoping that more and more organizations are open to that. I don't know if they are, but we'll get more into that later. But a perspective on that, do you think that employers are open to veterans?
3: I sure hope so. I mean, wh- why would you not want somebody who's literally battle-tested? Why would you not somebody who want someone who's already been pre-screened? Because, again, we screen people before they ever come into the military. If they have, you know, things that are flags, they- they're not allowed in. So that's number one. We've done your recruiting and screening for you. Number two is everybody gets trained. I don't care who you are, what you're doing. Everyone who enters the military goes through a formal training program. So that means that you're getting a person who's trainable. So it, it, he may not, he or she may not have the skill set you need, but they can learn because they've already proved they can. And then the last thing is whether you have a social conscience or not about you know giving back to the one percent of us who wore uniform and served our country, you know, in harm's way for the last say fourteen years. If you don't, if you as a employer aren't compelled to hire someone who's done that for you, then then do it from an economic point because most companies who hire vets have higher better decisions get made, and they get higher profit margins because these guys understand safety, they understand a chain of command, they understand a mission. I mean, they get it. They're, they're, they, they are about service before self. And so why on earth would you not want a vet on your team somewhere? And the last thing is, especially for women, and I will say this forever, if you hire a female, especially a female vet, she will raise the bar of excellence
2: in any Organization, she steps into here. Here, oh my gosh, Colonel, I believe that absolutely. And you brought us just perfectly to a place for our first break. So hold, hold your next thought. I got more for you. Time for a break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Colonel Kim Olson, U.S. Air Force retired. Her career spanned 25 years as she served as an aviation leader, commander, and patriot. She's the author of Iraq and Back: Inside the War to Win, Inside the War to Win the Peace. We've been talking a little bit about her her experience after she got out of the military. After the break, we're going to hear how she got herself into it and a bit about that experience. Stay with us.
0: It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
1: To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
2: Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. We're here with Colonel Kim Olson. As one of the first women to command an operational flying squadron, Kim rose to the rank of colonel, served in the Pentagon on the Joint Staff Office of the Secretary of Defense and the Air Staff and deployed to several combat zones, including Iraq. She joins us today from her ranch in Mineral Wells, Texas. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We'll pick up where we left off. She was talking about her career. After she got out of the military, now let's get into that, hold that moment, that actually decision point of actually what got you into it. And I have to say, I loved reading this in your book. We've talked a little bit about it in other places, but um, you had a couple choices when you first got out of, out, of, out of school. You had an education degree and you were considering maybe teaching biology. The other option was Air Force. If I have it right, your mom had a pretty specific idea about what you should do. What's the That's- story?
3: Yeah, that's correct. And you kind of got to set the backdrop. It's, you know, 1979. So right at that juncture in our history, all these career fields were beginning to open up for women. And the reason was because about six years earlier, we'd done Title IX. And what Title IX did for those of us that are Title IX babies is it opened up education for women. Everybody thinks about Mm. sports, but it really opened up colleges for women to go into law and medicine and and mm. engineering, and mathematics, and all those other kind of fields that had been dominated by men. So I come out of college, and as a part of that movement, the military opened up a lot of its doors to women. And like most 21-year-olds, I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. <laughs> so I'm walking on the beach with my mom with two job offers in my hand. One was, like you said, to, teach and, to take my teaching degree up, go up north, and teach. And the other was to join the Air Force and I said to my mother, and by the way, I come from a long line of educators. My mother spent 50 years in the education force. My All my extended family were educators. And uh, I said, you know, Mom, I'm a, I think I'm going to follow in your footsteps and take the job up north to teach. And she leveled her, her, her eyes at me, and then she promptly thumps me on the head with her finger, and she says, that was my only option when I got out of college. Now you think again. And she wasn't saying that education wasn't a good thing to go into. What she was saying was... You have opportunities that I never even dreamed of. Now, take one of them, and if you want to come back to education, do it. But at least try something else. So I did. And, of course, 25 years later, <laughs> I got out. <laughs> so that's kind, of how, that's kind of how it went.
2: I love the story. I love the story. And every tired okay. of the stories you tell while being in the military as well. But what were those early years like? Just first getting started brand spanking new. What was it like?
3: Well, I think it was like any other career field that you enter where you're one of the first and one of the only. For me, I was the only female in pilot training at the time down at a base at Del Rio by the Sea, as we called it. And, you know, it was an interesting time. You had folks that thought, oh, this is great. Yay, you know, here come women. It's about time, you know, blah, blah, blah. You had that set. You had folks that were like, are you out of your mind? You're going to ruin the military by bringing women in there. Not that we haven't been serving for, you know, 100 years, but... You're just going to ruin it for all of us type thing. And then there was this kind of segment in the middle, about a third of them, that are like, well, let's just see what happens. You know, do they meet the standards? Can she handle the pressure? You know, will she be afforded opportunities I'm not? You know, will she take my job away? I mean, it's all those. And it's all, I think, like most things, you know, perpetuated by fear, the fear of unknown of what what I was going to do or what I meant to their world. And by then, I mean all the men that were there. But, look, it, it, that that was 30-some-odd years ago. Today, in our military, like I said, only 1% serves. So why on earth would you not want to recruit from 51% of the population, which are women, to get the best and the brightest in there? I, I do. I, I want the best and the brightest when these guys are sitting around and gals are sitting around these war room tables deciding whether to send America's sons and daughters into harm's way. I want the smartest people in the room when we decide to exercise the instrument of military force, that, that just you want that, and so today it's 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 way different. And any general with his salt, and he'll tell you that the military is better because of women, not in spite of them.
2: Hmm. Well, I have not served, as you know, but I certainly agree with that. I do have some some friends that are in the in, in the military, and and many of them say. Actually, now that I think about it, every one of them say the same thing. Um, but but why pilot? I mean, how, what's the story there? Well, Did you have a choice as to what you were going to do? Was that just what they assigned you? Did you test into it? Why pilot?
3: Well, you know, the military does a really good job in your aptitude test. So it it, it really does well in deciding what you, where your skill sets fit best. Because, again, training's expensive. You know, we get you in. We want you on the job within a year. So they do a very good job of that. And when I first went in, they were just going to – because women weren't allowed to enter from – you know, kind of off the, off the street and go right into pilot training. So when I took the test, I obviously tested well and I was an athlete and I, you know, I was full of, you know, piss and vinegar. So I thought, well, I could do this. And went down and said, this is what I want to do. Oh, we don't, we don't let, we don't let girls do that. I'm like, well, why not? Well, you have to take all these tests and you got to pass a physical and this. I said, okay, well, I'll go do all that. So I went all <laughs> and did all that and they still wouldn't let me in. <laughs> so, I said, "Well, you know, this is just not fair. You know, I'm all at 21. <laughs> this isn't just this isn't fair. <laughs> so somebody says to me, well, go down there and talk to this Colonel Rush. I'll never forget this guy's name. You know, and tell him your your thing.' And I'm I'm just still in officer training school. I'm not even a commissioned officer yet. I'm still a trainee. I mean, I'm not even in the program <laughs> six weeks yet, and I'm already to my friend's term causing trouble. I should they should have known by then it was going to be a it was going to be difficult. Here it comes. Anyway, yep." I marched my, you know, little naive self down. And say, Hi, sir, you know, I did this and I did that, and la, la, la. And I said, and this is just not fair, you know. I should be able to fly because I'm, I'm just as qualified as these guys did. So a lot of it was just being naive about what you could and could do. Anyway, long story short, two weeks later, he calls me back down to the office ago, and office. They go, And all the trains like, oh, my God, I can't believe you went down there. That was the IG, the inspector general. I didn't know that. I wasn't <laughs> suave enough to know that. And to his credit. This is why you've got to have enlightened men on your side. He said, you know what? <laughs> he goes, you're right. It isn't fair. And we, the Air Force, are going to change our policy to allow people who are qualified to come into pilot training from where I was in the training. So unbeknownst to me, I sort of changed policy in, in the beginning. And then that, that just, what happens is when you're the first of something, then you're always the first. Because the military is a closed personnel system. So people don't come in the middle. We, everybody grows up from the bottom. So if you're the first at something, like say the first one of the first generation aviators, you're going to be the first captains. You're going to be the first flight commanders. You're going to be the first instructors. You're going to be the first commanders, the first colonels. It, it's just the way it's going to be. And so that became my my path. And my hope is I, like I said, I didn't just open doors. I took them off the hinges for gals.
2: Mm-hmm. It. What I love about that story, there's many things to comment on there, but what I love about it, of course, is it starts off with the whole idea of ignorance is bliss, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then it goes further because that whole thing, I think so many of us constrain ourselves all over our lives and our world and in our work because we think we're not supposed to ask where we've been told not to ask. And in your case, it never occurred to you not to ask. And I think there's a lot to get just from that right there. Love that. Yeah. Love that message.
3: Why would they not want you? I mean, think about it. Why, wouldn't you want, why would you not want me? <laughs> you know, that's a great thing for women to ask themselves. Why wouldn't you want me? Look at, look at me. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we're not talking about being asked to the prom, people. We've got to get over that. You know? it's I, a, yeah, of let's you just grab me. a handful
2: and take them with us to the, to the prom. I like that better. <laughs> uh, well, later in your career, you actually you, you trained other pilots. I know you've got some great stories about that. But So when and how did that happen and what was that experience like?
3: Well, you you do a bunch of different assignments, and in the flying world, you can fly different aircraft, and and within that aircraft, you can become an instructor pilot, you can become an evaluator, you can become all kinds of things. We have all kinds of paths that you take within the flying world, and it's a natural sequence that as you acquire time and and age and maturity, you become an instructor. So I was an instructor in a T-38, which is a supersonic jet trainer that we have, and I was. I did that for about five years, and then brought on what was called the T1, which is like a business jet, and that's what we used when we did crew training. And and then you instruct in my primary weapon system, which was the KC-135, which is the airborne refueling platform that we have. We pass gas in the air. That's, that's a joke. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and that's you know that's the one that sends you off all all around the world and deployed, and you know sends you off to war with that puppy. And that's what I ended up. Having my command tour, which is the which is the abyss for any most flying officers is to command an operational flying squadron. This is what you work for almost fifteen years to do and It was interesting at least because when we have this whole ceremony when that occurs and we have this little flag it 's called a guide on, and it 's the flag of your squadron. And the old commander passes it to your first shirt enlisted guy and then he passes it to you and it is the symbology of the changing of command. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I'll never forget it was a beautiful day. We're up on a platform, jets are in the background, audience, my family, everybody's in front of you. And I'll tell you at least when that guy went to hand me that guide on, I about ripped it out of his hands. I was like, Gimme that <laughs> thing, you know. And, <laughs> but it was it was not only did I, did I work so hard for it, but it really was the Air Force's final acknowledgement that I belonged, that I had earned the right to command not only men and women, but to take them, you know, anywhere in the world with billions of dollars worth of aircraft
2: and, and do the business of our nation.
3: I mean, it was really a quite a day. Mm. It, it just was.
2: You know what I have to say to that, Listening to this, because one of the things that I do in my spare time is I'm a meeting and work researcher, and I've heard other people talk and use that same terminology, that notion of belonging, Colonel, ter- that I think is so fascinating that that I don't think, th- that few people who live in the civilian world really understand that how important and powerful and meaningful that is, that sense of belonging. And you've written a little bit about, well, quite a bit about it, that in your book as well. And I just, I really appreciate how rich that, what that, what that really means. Means to you?
3: Yeah, and it, and it. I think you know, to hearten back to why Grace after fire, you, you know, there is a special bond that military folks have. You see it in all kinds of the movies. The, you know, the the brotherhood, and there is a sisterhood. Trust me in that. And there's a commanderhood, and there's a aviation hood. But it's it's interesting because even after you are done being a commander and you take your uniform off and you retire, there is still this drive in me. To do the care and feeding of the troops, which is really what a commander's job boils down to, because a commander doesn't do the mission, your troops do the mission. It's as simple as that. And your job as a commander is to take care of them and enable them to do a mission. And I would argue that if more leaders in, you know, corporate world and in education and in name it, nonprofits, took that, took that tack, that my job is to do the care and feeding of those of which i 'm responsible for, and that 's anybody that works for you we, we do a lot better in our in our in our missions
2: mm-hmm. I appreciate that, and I know along those lines, one of the things that you 've spoken about in your various speeches as well it 's inter- in your book too is that you would you would write letters home to the families of those that, that you were <laughs> that you were leading, and what an important thing that was in terms of uh, a pipeline of communication back home, a connection back home. How many other people did that? Was that something uniquely that you did, or is that something that's fairly well-practiced? Well, practiced?
3: well I, I just figured I, I needed all the help I could get in commanding, so why not enlisted families? I mean, think about it. The, these folks that work for me, for the most part, they're between the ages of 18 and about 21 now. In the Air Force, we're a little bit older. Our average age sits around 26 because you've got to go to college, and, and most of our folks are officers. But it's like parents are still very powerful in in their children's lives. So I wrote uh, to every parent, hand-wrote notes. I did five a day for my entire command tour, and I told them three things. One was um, how proud they should be of, you know, Sally, and this is the job she's doing, how honored I am to be their commander, and what a great parent they were to raise a son or daughter who would volunteer to serve their nation in uniform. But the unintended consequences of that was that many of the parents – would call their their children, you know, and say, "Oh, we just love that Colonel Olson. You better not do anything wrong. I'll tell you what." And it became, I had no trouble because all I had to do was look at a, a troop and say, you know, if you don't knock this off, I'm going to call your mom. And they're going, "Oh, go, oh God, don't call my mom. She loves you. She'll kick my butt." You know, so <laughs> it really became it really became quite a an interesting dynamic. And then other things happened. I'll tell you two stories. One was. And these are true stories. My ops officer came in to me, he was a guy, and I mean, he had absolute tears in his eyes, and he said, you wrote my dad. And I am like, uh-oh. This is the first, I thought, uh-oh, this is not going to be good. And he said, my, did you know my dad was going in for open-heart surgery? And my mom read him the card, and he patted my hand, his son's hand, and said, you're going to be okay. And- can you imagine? I thought, oh my gosh! So you never know. That's why I'm a big card writer or note writer to people because you never know when it's going to land on a day that they need it for whatever going. Because there's no way to know what's going on in all family dynamics. But if you will do that, the, the universe is a funny thing. It'll land on a day when people need to hear something really small like that. It makes a huge impact.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a second story. Did I miss well, the, uh, well the, the other
3: one was uh, <laughs> we had gone over to Saudi Arabia and one of the troops got something in his cargo that you weren't supposed to have and the um, folks that, you know, screen
2: your... Uh, Cargo. It was the. Oh, swimsuit. I remember was, this story. Yeah,
3: it was a swimsuit Playboy edition. It wasn't something really bad. Uh, oh, wait, a-
2: hold on, Colonel. Hold on just a second, if you would, please. I now, I was looking at my screen. I do need to go and break, and I want okay. this whole story to be nice and crisp without break. So hang on to that for just a second. Let's go on to this next break. Um, I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Colonel Kim Olson, retired from the U.S. Air Force. Her career spans 25 years as she served as an aviation leader, commander, and patriot. She's the author of Iraq and Back, Inside the War to Win. I'm sorry, Inside the War to Win the Peace. After the break, we're going to hear more about that story. She's just queued up for us. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter
0: for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment.
1: To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez.
2: Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We're here with Colonel Kim Olson. As one of the first women to command an operational flying squadron, Kim rose to the rank of colonel, served in the Pentagon on the Joint Staff Office of the Secretary of Defense and the Air Staff and deployed to several combat zones, including Iraq. She joins us today from her ranch in Mineral Wells, Texas. We've been talking a bit about some of her service while in the military and she was just about to tell us a really funny story, which I have heard before. I think you'll enjoy. Colonel, take it away.
3: Well, we were deploying to Saudi Arabia, like I said, and one of the things is you can't bring any kind of uh, anything that shows skin, basically. And you brief this, and you brief this, and you brief this, and sure enough, we end up. I'm sitting in my office, and my command sergeant, we call him the first shirts, came in. He said, "Well, I got good news and bad news." I said, "What's "What's the good news?" He said, "Well, everybody's good and accounted for, and on and on." I said, "Well, what's the bad news?" He said, "Well." The guys that screened the luggage, they uh, found a Playboy swimsuit edition, you know, video. And I thought, oh, crap. He said, yeah, and they've confiscated the pallet. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, what's, what's the bad news? He goes, your, your luggage was on it. I go, what? I said, bring the kid in here. So anyway, I bring this kid in, and you make him stand at attention in front of your desk, and the sergeant stands behind him, one, if the kid faints, or two, if the comes over the table at you. So I'm... Barking at this kid, I'm reading him the riot of act, how he shamed the squadron, and he shamed the Air Force, and he shamed the United States of America and blah 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 and we're guests in this country and this, that and the other thing. And he's doing good, man. He's standing there just at a brace. And normally I can drop him to his knees. <laughs> I Looked at him, I said, And if you don't straighten up, I have a right mind to call your mother. And down he went. He goes, Please don't call my mom. She will be so upset with me. She just loves you. Please don't call my mom. I'll do any detail. I go, get out of my office, you know. And the sergeant Goes, God, that was really good. I said, I know. <laughs> so, <anyway. laughs> that's, that's a true story.
2: <laughs> so many. I mean, these are the kind of things you know. For, for listeners, I've had the privilege of, of sitting with the colonel for for a few sessions here and there as we as our paths have crossed. And I make her tell stories like this because they're wonderful. So thank you for sharing that one again. I never tire of it. He might, maybe, I'm <laughs> tired of hearing it, but I don't. Um, Okay, a couple things. We don't have too much more time left here together, so I want to extract more out of you. But let's go into your book really quick. I really enjoyed your book for a couple reasons. One, it really is – it's very real. It's very down-to-earth, and it's nicely written, Colonel. I I appreciate your writing style and, and that you let us in. Um, and I appreciate also that your communication, you know, you shared various letters that you'd written back home and just things. And they, they helped us understand, you know, w- that you're, that you're a wife and a mom with two children and you were managing all that and handling all that while you're deployed. It was amazing. Um, but there's one part in there where you were trying to explain to your daughter that you're in a palace in Baghdad, um, sort of, kind of, not so much. Um, but what was it like for you to write that book and what were you trying to convey?
3: Well, I think a, a good question, uh, and I appreciate your kind words around the book, for, especially for a first-time author. Uh, and my advice would be if, if you struggle with anything in life, like war, it's good to get it out of you. And that's what that was the genesis of it. It was just a place to put down things I'd witnessed, um, things I felt. Um, I, I wasn't a journal person who journaled. That wasn't one of my things that I ever did. But some historian said, someday, Kim, this will mean something. So write down what you see, especially in these early days. And and he was right. And like I said, I wrote in my son's fifth grade composition book. You know, he had one of those composition books, those marble colored things. And so I wrote many of the stories while I was in Iraq. So they were at the moment, if you will. Then when I got out of the military in 06 or 05, you know, you're, you're trying to put it all together in a, in a, just in a story. And so that's what I did. I said, well, let's intertwine the visit to Iraq, my work in Iraq with my career as a pilot. And that's what the story does. And my hope was to bring you there and help you understand what what war is like and what these troops go through and what it's like to be a woman and yet what it's like to be just someone who wears a uniform trying to do the right thing in a whole different world in a whole different country. And I hope I accomplish that. But I I really believe, Elise, that especially for gals, it's important you write your history because if you don't, you don't get written into history. And it's as if you didn't contribute to it, which we know is just not true. If we we study our own history, we just know that's not true. So I, I say to a lot of the women that, for crying out loud, write this down. Even if you have no intention of publishing it, write it. Because you were important to what went on in these post-9-11 years. You are important to where America is today. It matters that your story gets told somehow, either to your family or to the public.
2: Mm -hmm. That is such a great point, that if you don't write your history, it might not actually ever get conveyed or remembered. That's so important. Oh, my gosh, I'm glad I asked that question. Thank you. Well, so another thing that I definitely want to talk about here uh, with your book, there's a lot of fascinating content in your book about your experience of being a woman in a testosterone-driven organization like the military, and I certainly applaud your strength and your determination to make it in this you know, very staunchly male-led institution. Now, one of the things that you say throughout your book, and I've heard you say in some of the, your, your your speeches, is you, you say that... Um, you know, how to navigate a successful career in the military. And you, you're not really all about the whole glass ceiling analogy. You know, you're, you say, and I think it's, I can quote this, it says, rather than smashing ceilings, women in non-traditional careers should start by unlocking the doors of opportunity. The secret is in finding those enlightened men who hold the keys, like Gen- General Garner. Um, and you've said that before, enlightened men. So say more about this, of what you've been able to experience being a woman and what you've learned along the way. How did you figure that out?
3: Well, I think you figure it out because there weren't many women ahead of me. And if there were, they were so busy just trying to make it themselves too. So the only way I became a colonel in the United States Air Force is because I had men who would support me in that endeavor. And and you just had to find those guys and spend your energy on working with them and bettering yourself versus spending your energy trying to convince a particular segment of, for in my case, pilots that I had a right to be there because you spend a lot of time and political capital and a lot of intellectual capital arguing with folks who are you're just not going to change their mind. So remember when I talked about that middle third that sort of sit on the fence and watch that's who you ought to concentrate on. So when folks enter into arenas in which you're a minority or when you're trying to prove yourself no matter what it is military or not you normally have a third that are with you that's great you got a third that will never come your way so let, let them be. And then you got a third in the middle that kind of are just waiting to see how you do. And, and my advice would always be concentrate on them. Do the, the best job you can do with the talents that you have, and that middle third will come with you. And that's kind of what happened to women, I think, in the military, because here we are, at least, 2015, and next year the, the Secretary of Defense is making the military tell the, him and the Congress why women can't be in certain jobs versus the way it was when I was in 20-some-odd years ago when we were battling like crazy to just try to get women in different career fields. So I think my generation and yours have fundamentally changed this nation for the better. I really do by allowing women in in the military because we simply bring a different skill set. We are, we are We have different talents that are needed in the very changing and dynamic battle space that we send our young men and women. And we sure as heck need leaders in that arena, not only for the military, but for the outside segment when they choose to get out and go back to their communities.
2: Mhm. <clears throat> we certainly see that same sort of benefit here in, you know, in, in in the civilian society as well when you see male-dominated organizations and they start to allow women to come in and suddenly things change definitely for the better. So I certainly applaud that. And you do a, it's you talk about that in your book, you talk about it in your speeches, but I think that your approach to navigating your career was was very smart. It was rather than beat your head against the wall and just get a, you know, a a broken head, why not actually get results? And I just, I think it's a very smart way. And the way that you talk about that just makes so much sense to me. I agree. Well, let's talk about this a little bit further here. We are purposely airing the show on Veterans Day. That was by design. And so let's talk a little bit about how, what, what can we do. You've been out there for 25 years busting your hump. I know that when you came back from Iraq, you even had some some health concerns here. So a couple, couple questions. First, what's it generally like for vets to reenter? What do they need from us? And what can we do to better support our vets at home, society-wise, in terms of employment? What can we do?
3: But there's a lot of things out there that folks can do, and, and most issues get solved, I would argue, at least at the grassroots level. You know, some community decides we, we are going to help our vets no matter what they need. No matter what it takes, we're going to help them. Again, I keep harping on this, but only 1% of us serve in the uniform today. 1% of the country Serves in the military today, and they have taken the brunt. This generation of these two conflicts of warfare for almost 12 to 14 years. Some I listened to the guy the other day was going back for the sixth time to Afghanistan, and what he leaves behind is a family, a mom and kids. So schools need to help the military children, especially when their kids are when their uh, parents are deployed. Sometimes the mom and dad go and get deployed. Employers have to help them because, again, this generation, unlike any other one, had Guard and Reserve guys who deployed in record numbers, and they'd come back and wouldn't have jobs left. Yeah, the law says they're supposed to have them, blah, 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 but sometimes it doesn't work out like that. So come on, employers. You know, you enjoy a wonderful democracy free of, you know, all kinds of security issues that we're seeing all around the world, and that comes on the backs of these guys and gals that wear the uniform. So give them their freaking jobs back and get over it. And if you want, hire a vet. You know, they're a great, great asset to your organization. And the last thing is uh, most of these veterans tend to go back to school. Shame on you, predatory education systems, that all you want is a 9-11 GI bill and give the kid nothing but debt or use up all of their benefits, and then they don't have a degree of which they can raise a family on. Shame on you. You know, get Schools should work with vets, work with veteran organizations, and get these kids on a right path so that they can get an education because most came into the military without a college degree, and they can get a decent job and support their family because, look, they still want to serve the communities that they come from. That's the bottom line.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I, as I mentioned, I, when I first got into the human capital space, gosh, 17, 18 years ago, and over the course of the last several years, I've met more and more organizations that are actually in place to help military people transition from their service back into the civilian world and get decent jobs again. And I really applaud their efforts. But we need more of them, I think. There are some organizations that do better than others to be able to bring purposely solicit military people. I can tell you I do know my husband works for Deloitte. They do, they have a program for that. He loves that because he he was in in the army for a bit. Uh so anyway, I agree with that and and I'd like to see more of it. But again, since we are in Veterans Day and we're about celebrating, we're about thanking. Um you mentioned several things that that um uh, veterans get out of their service, but what kinds of things are they learning? They learn service, certainly they learn how to be trained. What are the other kinds of things that we can say that they get from the military service that would be useful to employers?
3: Well, I think it's a lot of those. Most employers will tell you today, least, that they're not struggling from kids who, who, who don't think well. They struggle from folks that don't have soft skills. They don't show up to work on time. You know, they... <laughs> they they're not good at oral and written communications. They they're not critical thinkers. They're not problem solvers. I would argue every single military person has all those skills and then some. So if you just want and I'm not talking about a kid who's going to come in and throw burgers for you. I'm talking about a kid who can make a difference in your bottom line. That's what these folks from the military can do. And think about it, if you're if you're willing to volunteer and and know you're going to deploy then that means you're a committed kind of person. And don't you want committed people working for you, in what, whether you're making furniture, whether you're you know, a manufacturer, whether you're in high tech? And that's the other thing. You, know, you talk about a technically savvy um, individual, almost all military folks have to be technically savvy because that's how our weaponry is today, and that's how all of our education systems are in the military. So now you've got a kid that knows all about IT. They have wonderful things to offer. Yeah, infantrymen can break down a, a weapon in 60 seconds, put it back together again, and you say, well, how is that transferable to the civilian skill set? Gee, hmm, attention to detail, safety, task-orientated, self-starter. Shall I keep going? <laughs> don't you want, I mean, don't <laughs> yeah. you want those skill sets on your work? If you don't, don't hire a vet, you know, get somebody else. But if that's the kind of worker you want, that's what you're going to get, and a person who's committed to seeing the job done. Where are you going to go wrong? How are you going to go wrong?
2: I don't know. I'm with you. I just wanted to make sure you articulated that because you can do it better than I can. Well, I want to make sure get. that today, are- of all days, that we're, one, thanking our veterans, and we're thinking about ways that we can better support them, and so I wanted to make sure we, we got that out there as to really what employers are going to get. So um, we're almost to the very close of the show already. The time goes by so very fast, but um, do you have any final words of wisdom, maybe maybe like the, your last little one-minute shebang, anything you want to say to close to tell our listeners today well, on Veterans just, Day? Well, I
3: would offer your listeners this. Many of you guys go out there, and you hang your flags, and, and you do great things to celebrate them vets on one day. But here's what I'd ask you. Think about the hands that put that flag up. And in your hands are the future of many of the veterans within your own community. Take your hands and do something for them, whether it's offering them a job, whether it's helping your local VA organization, whether it's taking your hand and shaking another vet's hand when you see him. Your hands can do something to help our veterans today. Thanks, Elise.
2: Oh, my gosh. What a wonderful close, Colonel Olson. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I knew this was going to be a wonderful conversation, and I'm thrilled that I get to have it with you for Veterans Day. So thank you much for taking time and being here.
3: Thanks for hosting, and thanks for
2: recognizing Vets, Elise. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, I want to make sure that people have the ability to find you and talk with you if they want to connect with you again. So I, I certainly thought I would send them to Amazon for your book, but is there another place that they can go if they do want to connect with you?
3: I don't know. What do you think? Like, Where do people go? Like Facebook or something?
2: Uh, you're on, you're not on LinkedIn, right? No, I'm a, I'm okay. a, a non um, Well, a then I think they should just go to Amazon and get the book. That's a place to start then. Um, okay. And if anybody wants to somehow to be connected to her, you can always contact me, the host, and I'll, I'll make the connection for you. So if you have any questions, want to follow up, or tell her what an amazing job she's done, she's done for us and our country, you can just reach me via my host page and I'll make sure she gets the message. But such an important conversation to have on such an important day, today's Veterans Day. Thank you, all servicemen and women, for your service and dedication to this country. Happy Veterans Day. See you next
1: week. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.